0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to Front Run, where we predict the future of money and technology. Happy Thanksgiving week to all of the front runners in the United States. I am super grateful this year for the 175 new subscribers who have joined Front Run over the past 14 days. Truly surprising, given the amount of exceptional independent journalism that exists on Medium and Twitter and even Substack. If this is your first time with us, we are all here to front run the next generation of wealth creation that we believe is decentralized finance and yes, cryptocurrency, even on the backdrop of all the chaos and uncertainty that persists in the industry today. This is a long term play. I'm your host, John Cook, and it's the fourth week of November, 2022. Today, we're going to cover an interesting topic that I think is relevant to everyone who wants to understand the impact of the broader macroeconomy on cryptocurrency, and it's the mechanisms for predicting a recession. What I've come to find out and learn just through the exploration of technology, finance, and crypto, is that this intersection of these three arenas? It's very in demand and very emerging, even in 2022. There are podcasters and independent journalists who talk about crypto. There are people who talk about macro. There are people who talk about the broader financial market. But here at Front One, we're going to transcend all three categories on our journey to wealth creation. And we do this because our first principle of Front Run is the realization that the information you need to win is already available. Unfortunately, most people ignore it because it sounds too complicated, even though it's not. And what sounds more complicated than recession indicators, and labor force participation. It sounds so abstract and esoteric, most people just check out, but we're not gonna check out. We're going to persist. So we're going to answer three questions over the course of this podcast. Question one, what is a recession? Question two, are we in one right now? Question three, if not, will we be in one next month, next year, 24 months from now? All of these questions are deeply interconnected, and depending on what segment of the population you're asking, uh, for example, economists who work for the government, they'll give you one answer. Investment bankers who work for commercial lenders and financial institutions, they'll give you another answer. Republicans, they'll give you a different answer. Democrats, a different answer. So that's why we must reject all of the secondhand information that we hear and answer the question using our first-hand domain knowledge of the information which surrounds us. So question number one, what is a recession? Technically speaking, a recession can be described as two negative quarters of GDP growth. This is how traditional economists and financial institutions uh, quantify if we're in a recession. So let's let's peel back the onion. Peel back the onion. Two quarters of negative GDP growth. Okay, what is GDP and what is negative growth? GDP stands for Gross Domestic Product. It is the sum of the money we all spend on stuff. I mean, think about. The amount of money Americans spend on cars, video games, haircuts, stuff you buy every day, services you use every day, that's GDP. You add up all the sum of money people spend on stuff, plus the amount of money companies spend investing in stuff, think about buildings, land, inventory, plus the amount of money the government spends on stuff right so we're not done yet but if you're following along gross domestic product is the sum of money people spend on stuff the sum of money companies spend on stuff the sum of money the government spends on stuff plus the amount of stuff we export to other countries minus the amount of stuff we import from other countries so if you were to just like play this out on a formula You add up all the stuff you buy, you add up all the stuff your company buys, you add up all the stuff the government spends on roads, schools, national defense, you add up all the stuff that we export to other countries like oil, planes, you subtract the stuff we import from other countries, cars, iPhones, and you get GDP. That's the gross domestic product. So as a frame of reference, the nominal GDP per quarter in the United States is somewhere between 18 to 20 trillion dollars. Trillion dollars with a T, not a B, not an M. So the amount of the sum of money people on the sum of money people spend on stuff plus the sum of money companies spend investing in stuff plus the amount of money the government spends on stuff plus the amount of stuff we export to other countries minus the amount of stuff we import from other countries is on average $20 trillion per quarter. That's a ton of money, right? So, on an annualized basis, that's $1,000 That's That's $1,000 billion <laughs> per year. What a wild number, right? So, that's GDP, gross domestic product. Now, in order to answer the question are we in a recession using the definition of two consecutive quarters of negative gdp growth we have to also explain what does negative growth mean that's like a that seems contradictory right negative growth isn't that just not growth <laughs> kind of sort of i mean every quarter the us government publishes it's called the table three gross domestic product level and change from the preceding period and the easiest way to to conceptualize this is they look at the difference between this quarter and the same quarter last year and if the difference between this quarter and the previous quarter from one year ago is negative negative. Then that's one quarter of negative growth. So, and if that happens twice, it's two quarters in a row, and then we're in a recession technically. So, if you think about just this example with real numbers, if last quarter GDP was 100, and then this quarter GDP was 99, right? The GDP growth quarter year over year using this quarter from the previous year would be 1%. And let's say that happened for two quarters. Then we're technically in a recession. And if you guys remember from uh, maybe summer 2022, we did experience two quarters of negative GDP growth. Uh, looking at Table 3, Ghost Domestic Product, from the U.S. government, quarter one was negative 78% billion dollars and quarter 2 was negative 46 billion dollars so i guess we were in a recession but there was a big political overlay that was that was in flight at that time if you recall we were approaching the midterm elections biden was catching a lot of heat there was a big push from the republican party to try to get the message out to the broader American populace that we were in a recession. And the counterpoint from Joe Biden is that we weren't in a recession. This is not a political podcast, but keep in mind there was, there was a strong push from the elected officials of the DNC to convey to the population that we were not in a recession despite two quarters of negative gdp growth that's why we should always reject these secondhand viewpoints from mainstream media they usually have an agenda and during that time the agenda of the republican party was to convey to the american people we were in a recession the agenda from the dnc was to convey to the american people that no despite being in a scenario where we have two negative quarters of GDP growth, we weren't in a recession, right? Reject everything and form your own opinion. One way to form a point of view on the likelihood of a recession, now or at some point in the future, is to explore what large commercial institutions like the Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, RBC Wealth Management are saying. And... Although they do use the traditional definition of two consecutive quarters of GDP growth as an indicator of a recession, they expand upon it by creating a composition of metrics collectively called recession indicators and labor force participation that provide a more robust position for RBC Wealth Management, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan. I choose my words carefully because one could just look at a 10-year, 3-month spread on U.S. Treasury notes, and those have been an accurate predictor of a recession since 1950. So I keep coming back to this point of view. Why do these bankers keep publishing these complex 50-page reports on what is a recession if one metric, the yield curve between a 10-year 3-month note works every single time? The cynic in me says it's an attempt for it's it's an excuse really for bankers to justified their expensive fees to ultra high net well ultra high net worth individuals but I'll I'll sidebar that for now but just keep in mind as we explore these topics and as you read Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, RBC Wealth Management, Merrill Lynch research papers on recessions you're going to notice that they're like 30, 40, 50 pages and part of me thinks that's intentional Using RBC Wealth Management as an example, they publish a quarterly U.S. recession scorecard, which is the composition of seven indicators. One of the indicators is really a composition of 10 other indicators. I've published an analysis of each indicator within the RBC Wealth Management U.S. recession scorecard that you can check In the show notes, or you can go to frontruncrypto.com. The seven indicators on the U.S. recession scorecard, it's the yield curve, unemployment claims, unemployment rate, conference board leading economic index, free cash flow of non-financial corporate business, ISM new orders minus inventories, and the Fed funds rate versus nominal GDP growth. The first four that I described we're going to sidebar that for now because each one of those we're going to go into greater detail because they all have a lot of nuance behind them that makes it not as clear as it seems. But the bottom three, free cash flow of non-financial corporate institutions. Just think about banks, right? If you exclude the entire population of companies that are banks, you take them out of the picture, that's what they mean when when institutions say, free cash flow of non-financial corporate businesses. Free cash flow, free cash flow of a business means you look at the revenue, you back out the expenses, you back out any debt service obligations that the corporation must pay, any liabilities. The net result is free cash flow. Okay? When the free cash flow of a non-financial corporation is expressed as a percentage of GDP, when that amount as a percentage of GDP is, is less than zero, not zero, less than zero, a recession occurs. And if it sounds abstract, and I candidly I... I feel like these economists make it so abstract on purpose to just get people to check out. But if you remember GDP, it's just the amount of money people spend on stuff, the amount of money corporations spend on stuff, the amount of money the government spends on stuff, plus the amount of services and goods we export to other countries minus the amount we import, right? Right. If the free cash flow as a percentage of GDP, when only considering non-financial corporate businesses, is less than zero, there's a recession. This has happened with immense accuracy since 1958. This metric was less than 0 in 58, less than 0 in 70, less than 0 in 82, the year 2000, 2008, so on and so forth, right? So it's, it's an accurate indicator of a recession, but these composite dashboards look at other metrics beyond just the single free cash flow of non-financial corporate businesses. The other metric that is widely used is ISM New Orders Minus Inventories. This is a metric that's tracked by the Institute of Supply Management. This is applicable to the manufacturing industry. Cars, planes, boats, etc. Right When the outstanding inventory of all the cars, all the planes, all the boats is greater than the new orders of cars, planes, and boats... There's a recession. This has been accurate for every recession since 1973. It's had a hit rate of 4 out of 5. We've had a recession in, in 73, 80, 2008, also the year 2000, and 2020. This metric, ISM new orders minus inventories, has accurately predicted a recession four out of the five periods. It missed the year 2000. So that could be a good barometer for overarching economic health, but maybe it's not the only one. Conceptually, though, as listeners, you should get this, right? If there's a glut of inventory of cars, as an example, fewer dealerships are going to be ordering cars. They already have a bunch, right? It's an indicator of a potential recession. Another indicator is the fed funds rate versus nominal gdp growth. All right, so we've already covered uh, we've already covered gdp growth. Two consecutive quarters of negative gdp growth is a recession at least in the technical sense. When we look at the fed funds rate versus nominal gdp growth, every cycle where the fed funds rate, which is the rate at which the federal reserve lends money to other financial institutions, not to you and me, but to other banks, when that rate is greater than the nominal GDP growth, a recession occurs. And this has been an accurate indicator since 1955. I mean, we've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight recessions since the 50s, wow. And it's been spot on. So it could be overkill. You could use any single recessionary indicator in isolation. But in the spirit of a comprehensive analysis, right, the free cash flow of non financial corporate businesses, ISM new orders minus inventories, Fed's funds rate versus nominal GDP growth, they all are good barometers of an expansionary or recessionary environment, right? What's interesting is if you look at this US recession scorecard published by RBC Wealth Management for November 2022, Of these seven indicators, the yield curve, the unemployment claims, unemployment rate, the conference board leading economic index, which is really a composition of 10 other uh, recession indicators, plus the cash flow of nine financial corporate businesses, ISM new orders and Fed funds versus nominal GDP growth. If you look at all those metrics, four out of the seven are expansionary, and only three are recessionary. The three that are recessionary are the yield curve, the conference room board-leading economic index, we're going to go to that in a second, as well as the ISM new orders minus inventories. So, quoting RBC Wealth Management, their position is that the indicators have flipped to recessionary status so far, and when you combine this with the most recent low in unemployment claims, all of this points towards a recession getting underway by Q2 2023. What's important, or at least worthy of consideration, is that when RBC says a recession getting underway by 2023 Q2, this is predicated on a 100 basis point uptick in unemployment rate, right? I think right now we're hovering around 3.5%. We have to shoot up 100 basis points to over 4.5% to be in what RBC considers a recessionary environment. So, if you believe that to be true, we're not in one right now, but we will be one in Q223, but only if unemployment rate increases from 3.5% to 4.5%. The next question you should be asking is, well, what is unemployment rate? The unemployment rate is not what you think. It's not what you think. The unemployment rate is calculated as the number of unemployed people as a percentage of the labor force. Okay, that sounds reasonable, right? The number of unemployed people as a percentage of the total labor force, that's unemployment rate. Sure. But now we have to answer the question, what does labor force mean? Labor force is measured by U.S. economists such that it actually excludes individuals who not... <laughs> I can't even say this. It, it's so crazy. It excludes individuals who have not been actively looking for work for the past four weeks. Let, let that let that sink in. Labor force is measured by U.S. US economists such that it excludes individuals who have not been actively looking for work for the past four weeks. So if you're unemployed and you have not been looking for a job, you're not part of the labor force and you're not part of unemployment. What I don't get is why are economists and bankers excluding individuals who are not looking for jobs from the unemployment rate calculation? These people are unemployed. They literally don't have a job. We include this segment of the population in GDP growth and consumption, so why not include them in unemployment? I'm happy to like even make an argument or provide a point of view that we should exclude retirees, right? Or the permanently no, I don't even want to say permanently unemployed, because anybody who hasn't been looking for a job for the past four weeks, they might run, they might pull the angle that they're permanently unemployed. Let, let's pump the brakes and only include retirees. I'm happy to make the case to exclude retirees from the labor force. But for the sake of completeness, all able-bodied working adults should be included in the labor force. So this is an important distinction. When you look at these recessionary scorecards and or really any government metric that talks about unemployment rates, they are excluding individuals from the labor force who have not been looking for jobs for the past four weeks or greater. I mean, set that aside, that, that's just a huge red flag to me. But if we accept that as the base case and the truth for unemployment rate calculation... We can look at other analyses like what the Goldman Sachs just published, and they're taking a similar point of view that a recession in 2023 is unlikely and actually assign a probability of 35%, right? RBC Wealth Management didn't assign a probability. I mean, I guess you could, like, do the three recessionary indicators divided by the total seven recession, Indicators on the SCAR card, maybe we'll get like 40%, but RBC was a little more nuanced and they said that we will not be in a recession unless unemployment increases by 100 basis points. And if that is true, we foresee a recession by Q2 2023. Goldman Sachs is saying, hey, we don't think a recession is going to happen in 2023. Full stop, bro. We're assigning a probability of 35%. So their, their assessment of this and how they came to this conclusion, the talking minds at Goldman Sachs and company, it's measured by the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. You might hear this on the news as PCE Index. It's an aggregate measure of prices people pay for goods and services, right? So the price of a dozen eggs was probably what, three dollars last year now it's what 350 if you add up the price people pay for goods and services across all goods and all services you get the personal consumption expenditures index right and if you if you were to like overlay the pc index i got a chart the y-axis is the uh is the rate of change and the x-axis is time, you'll actually see that year over year, quarter over quarter, U.S. core PCE inflation has increased from, I think, a steady state of 2% in 2021 to we're, we're coming in hot right now at almost 5.5%. Goldman Sachs thinks that this measure will revert to its mean by 2024, so somewhere between 2 and 3%, and they're only forecasting a 50-cent, oh, a 50 basis point increase in unemployment. So while RBC was forecasting a 100 basis point increase in unemployment, Goldman Sachs is only forecasting 50 basis points, which is, for all intents and purposes, a fully employed economy. And Goldman Sachs is adding on the PCE inflation, for avoiding Tid's Mean in 2024, putting it all together, they assign a probability of 35%. So you might be thinking to yourself, how is it possible that the Federal Reserve can bring down inflation to 3% without causing widespread unemployment? You hear this on the news. Inflation is going to cause employers to invest less adjust down earnings growth, eventually yield to widespread unemployment, that's going to cause an increase to the aggregate unemployment population, which means people spend less money. When people spend less money, there's more goods available. When there's more goods available, prices on goods go down. Right? How is it possible that the Federal Reserve can bring down inflation without just causing havoc in the unemployment space? Goldman Sachs thinks this time it's different. They call out three points specifically. and I'm gonna read you exactly what Goldman Sachs says and then we'll provide an interpretation afterwards because the language they use is just so it's so stuffy. It doesn't need to be this complex, all right. So bullet point one. The persistent state of low unemployment is not a byproduct of excessive unemployment, but rather unprecedented job op- job openings. Okay, Goldman Sachs is saying that the low unemployment we're experiencing in America is not a result of people working multiple jobs. It's a result of employers having too many job openings. I'm not sure I agree with that, but conceptually... If you think about the base case for employment, imagine that your employer has 10 employees and five open job requisitions. Now, tomorrow, your employer has five more job requisitions for a total of 10 job requisitions and 10 employees. Goldman Sachs thinks that the U.S. population is fully employed, and your employer will not be able to find candidates for the five new job requisitions. One could argue against that in, I think what we're going to see, front runners is an increase in Households and individuals picking up second jobs. That's beyond the scope of this conversation, but that could be one mechanism to address employers having multiple job openings. But because Goldman Sachs thinks that the low unemployment is not a byproduct of people working multiple jobs, but rather a byproduct of employers having multiple job openings, that is an indicator that a recession is unlikely. They go on to say that the deleveraging of housing markets and the disinflationary impact of supply chain normalization is just getting started. Okay, there's two things in there. Number one is the deleveraging of housing markets. Uh, This is housing markets. The housing market in 2021 was insane. I remember making offers on houses in the Bay Area, California, and being blown out of the water by Four, five, six, seven hundred thousand $700,000, right? The deleveraging of housing markets is an indicator that as a byproduct of increased interest rates and economic uncertainty, the housing markets will experience a contraction. Builders will experience reduced demand. And that is going to lead to an overall deleveraging of the housing market. When you overlay the disinflationary impact of supply chain normalization. It's just a fancy way of saying that the cost of stuff we import from other countries will go down, right? You take this information, you give it to the Goldman Sachs quants, and they run it through an algorithm and come out with this explanation that long-term inflation projections remain anchored relative to the 1970s. It's just a way of saying that their economists have decided that inflation will run... 3% year-over-year normalized. So if we take a step back and recap our analysis so far, RBC Wealth Management thinks that we're going to have a recession by Q2 2023, but only if unemployment goes up by about 100 basis points. Goldman Sachs thinks we're not going to have a recession in 2023. They assign a 35% probability. If we look at the traditional approach for quantifying a recessionary environment, looking at two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, we're not in a recession, nor are we forecasted to be in one. But what we haven't covered is the yield curve. Yield curve is a very important concept that is used to measure a recessionary or expansionary environment. It's also one of the recessionary indicators on the RBC scorecard. So let's dive into the importance of the yield curve and also explain what exactly is a yield curve, right? I'm sure you've heard on CNN, MSNBC, Fox and all of the above about a yield curve inversion. A yield curve inversion, the two the, the what? 2-year 10-year yield curves inverting, the 3-month 10-year yield curves inverting, the 10-year 1-year yield curves inverting. Like what does all that mean? Right, so the shape of the U.S. Treasury yield curve is looked at as the barometer for U.S. economic growth. That's why it's on the news all the time. It reflects how the Federal Reserve intends to stimulate or slow economic growth by cutting or raising its policy rate. This is the Fed funds rate. This is Jerome Powell, what he's doing right now. Right, in a risk-on, low interest rate environment, short-term bonds like T-bills, which Have a maturity date of less than 12 months, right? Have lower yields to reflect that an investor's money is at less risk, right? It makes sense. You're putting money into an investment vehicle that's guaranteed by the faith and credit of the United States of America, right? You give them $99, 12 months later, you get back $100. It's risk-free. It's risk-free. The rationale behind this is that the longer you commit your capital, the more you should be rewarded for that commitment, right? This is reflected in what's called a normal yield curve. So for those listeners, it's a it's where the curve on a chart slopes up and to the right as the bond's maturity date increases further into the future. So if you think about an XY chart, uh, the x-axis is time think three months five months 10 years 20 years 30 years and the y-axis is yield right uh in a normal yield curve scenario the curve goes up and to the right as the bond's maturity date increases further into the future right it's a fancy way of saying that a 30-year treasury note has a higher yield than a one-year Treasury bill, right? Or a corporate bond from Carvana has a higher yield than a 12-month Treasury note from the U.S. government. It works until it doesn't, all right? During periods of economic slowdown, the yield curve inverts as investors flee to safety by purchasing short dated government bills and notes. What happens in this scenario is the yield curve inversion is where the curve slopes down into the right as the bond maturity date increases into the future, right? So the further out you go, the lower the yield is on an asset. That's in a risk off high interest rate environment like what we're in right now. We know from historical data that short-term yields rise in parallel with, with inflation. I posted this on Front Run Crypto. You can see it in the, in the show notes. It's a chart of the treasury bill rates compared to the consumer price index since 1950. When CPI goes up, the three-month T-bill goes up. When CPI goes down, the three-month T-bill goes down. It seems counterintuitive... Why would long-term investors settle for lower rewards than short-term investors who are assuming less risk? When long-term investors believe that this is their last chance to lock in current rates on long-dated treasuries, they become less demanding of lenders. I mean, consider from 2020 through 2021, we had a government-induced shutdown of the global economy and a U.S. central bank that printed literally $5 trillion of new money out of thin air. We already know the answer, right? There is an increase in consumer savings that led to pent-up demand for goods and services. And as the economy opened up, corporations were either unwilling or unable to keep pace with consumer demand. This caused the price of all goods and all services to go up. This is inflation, right? The amount of stuff you can buy for a dollar goes down. When inflation goes up and consumer spending power goes down, central banks like the one in the United States led by Jerome Powell reduce the total number of dollars in circulation. This is quantitative tightening. They increase the cost of borrowing. This is the federal funds rate, right? When the cost of borrowing goes up and inflation is up, it further decreases the consumer spending power. It's literally a double whammy so ask yourself why why would the central bank do this why would the central bank i i consider this a form of taxation when government policies set forth by our elected and unelected leaders result in the stuff we buy costing more money that's tax right why would the central bank do this it's to force consumers into spending less. When there's a decrease in consumer spending coupled with an increase in the cost of borrowing, corporations make less money, which forces firms to lower their capital spending, eliminate hiring, and pause investing. This is happening right now in 2022. You can look at the S&P 500 uh, gap earnings growth compared to the same period this time last year, it's a year-over-year earnings growth chart, what you see is the gap-adjusted earnings growth of all companies that have reported earnings as of November 27th and the S&P 500 have reported a 10% decrease in growth, in growth. As a frame of reference, when we came out of COVID, the earnings growth was almost 300%. So it's a steep decline from the post-COVID immediate opening. What's happening is the basket of companies in the S&P 500 are telling investors to manage their expectations. Manage your expectations. A decrease in earnings makes the E and the P-E ratio smaller, right? If the numerator is share price, the denominator is earnings per share, right? When the E goes down, this increases the price an investor pays for each dollar of profit. That is the P-E ratio. Investors hate this. So if the E in the P-E ratio won't go down, you know it has to go down? The share price. So when the share price goes down, the market cap of the firm decreases, right? This means the company is worth less. So it's bad when this happens to a company, but when this happens to all companies, it signals to the broader market that the slowdown in growth as measured by earnings, hiring, investing, this slowdown is in progress. This causes long-term investors to flee to safety by purchasing government-backed treasury notes. This is what pushes up the treasury. This is what pushes up the yield on these treasury notes, right? Increased demand. When there is a demand for treasuries, the new treasuries get, get auctioned by the government at a higher yield. The old treasuries have less demand. So the price goes down, which there's an inverse relationship between the Price of a bond or treasury and its yield so if a treasury is trading at 99 today and next week it trades at 95 i buy it at 95 i get a higher effective yield the person who bought it for 99 if they if they hold through maturity they're going to get the same yield uh, that they bought for that they bought it for but given that there's less demand for existing treasuries, because the government is issuing new treasuries at a higher rate, it makes existing treasuries cheaper. So if you go to Fidelity, you go to E-Trade, whatever brokerage you want, you can see a secondary market for treasuries that are trading like $97, $98 per par, right? And this is like a three-month note. I mean, it's free money. So this is the fleet of safety that uh, that we're experiencing right now. Why would an investor commit capital to a risk-on-asset underperforming U.S.-backed government notes that are now paying north of 4%? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. Nobody would. And if you are, you should be doing an analysis against the base case of a guaranteed 4% from a U.S. government note. Like, for example, if you want to go out and buy some ETH right now or buy some staked ETH on Lido, it's paying, what, like 5% APY? Do you want to risk buying staked ETH paying 5% APY when a risk-free rate of return from a U.S. government note is paying 4%? You probably shouldn't. I mean, you could make the argument that Uh, The underlying asset ETH will go up over the next 12 months. I don't think it will, but that would be the only rational justification for buying ETH given that staked ETH only pays 5% when a risk-free rate of return from the U.S. government pays 4%. Right. Another example, consider the broader U.S. residential real estate market. It now has an average cap rate lower than the annual yield on a six-month T-bill. For those who aren't in the real estate market, the cap rate is the net income produced divided by the net income produced by the property divided by its market value, right? So if you have a property that's throwing out, just using round numbers, $100,000 a year in net income, net operating income, this is after any mortgage mortgage fees, um, any holdbacks for repairs. If the property you own yields a net operating income of $100,000 per year and its market value is $1 million, that's crazy, Uh, you would have a cap rate of 10%. All right, it's not happening anymore. If we look at the cap rate of all residential real estate, of the aggregate residential real estate market, and we compare it against Six-month T-bills, it's crazy. The cap rate is now 4.5%, but what? The six-month T-bill is 4.6%. When I share this with my real estate friends, the most common pushback I get is that it doesn't take into account the appreciation of the property. It doesn't take into account the tax advantages with respect to depreciating the asset. Right? Totally agree with that. Uh, Real estate investments have an effective return that is higher than just the cap rate but in the spirit of like quantifying the free cash flow right you can't pay your bills with the depreciation on an asset i mean you can claim the depreciation of the asset on your tax return but you can't go out and buy a dinner with the depreciation from your property right so it's it's wise to quantify the return of a physical asset based on the actual net operating income it produces as opposed to taking into account the net operating income plus the appreciation, plus the depreciation, right? It's kind of funny money. At least that's my two cents. So putting the the whole real estate and crypto market aside, there's a second order implication with increased borrowing costs, right? We now, we agree that the federal funds rate, which is, the cost to borrow money is going up. When the cost to borrow money goes up, intra-bank, you see that increase reflected in higher yields paid by U.S. government on 10-year notes, 1-year notes, 6-month notes, 20-year notes, all notes, right? But it is also reflected on the interest rate uh, that individuals are taking on for a mortgage, right? If you overlay the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield on a 30-year fixed rate note, you see they rise and fall in parallel, right? It's because the federal funds rate, which is, again, the cost of borrowing money, intra-bank has many other implications to the broader U.S. domestic market. One second-order implication with increased borrowing costs is that it actually increases a company's debt service coverage ratio. So debt service coverage ratio is a fancy way of quantifying the amount of income that a company earns that has to be allocated to servicing its debt. In the traditional and personal finance space, this is normally called the debt to income ratio, right? You go out, you buy a house, the lender wants to make sure your debt to income ratio is what, no more than 40% of your gross tax income. For corporate America, that same metric is the debt service coverage ratio. U.S. corporations have a record amount of debt in the history of the United States. I mean, it it's... If you look at the Fred chart on non-financial corporate business debt, securities, loan, and liabilities, I mean, it's like... $12,000 billion. I'm not even exaggerating. You take 12000 you add nine zeros behind it. That's the aggregate amount of corporate debt that exists in America. It's absolute insanity. Now, for corporations that have the debt securitized with long duration bond, long-duration bonds, they're going to be okay. But not a lot of corporations have long-term debt. Normally, corporations take debt in the form of a bridge loan, short-term notes, one-year, three-year, five-year, and when that happens, the debt has to either be paid off or refinanced. It will probably be refinanced, but now, given the increase in borrowing costs, it's going to be refinanced at a higher rate. Ouch that means corporations will now have a higher principal interest payment which means they'll have less money to allocate towards r&d hiring investing it's we're going to be in for a bad time everyone we can put this all together and tie it back to the uh, original question what is the yield curve and why does it matter by extrapolating the following right ongoing inflationary pressures pent up consumer demand a persistent state of overemployment combined with investor concerns related to liquidity risk and financial markets are causing a flight to safety whereby risk on assets are being liquidated in exchange for short-term government bills. This means yields on long-term assets are going down, yields on short-term assets are going up. Okay. When we take the difference between a short-dated treasury bill and a long-dated treasury note, Bills are government bonds with a maturity date of less than 12 months. Notes are government bonds with a maturity date of greater than 12 months. If we take the difference between a short-dated bill and a long-dated note, the spread between the bill and the note is used to calculate a potential yield curve inversion, where the yield on the short-term bill is greater than the yield on a long-term government note. Okay? When we look at the 2-year, 10-year part of the yield curve, when that curve is inverted, a recession follows, on average, 18 months later. When we look at the 3-month, 10-year yield curve inversion, that has been a signal of, of every U.S. recession since 1950. And guess what? Right now... Right now, uh, the yield curve on a two-year ten-year, and three-month tenure are inverted. So are we in a recession? The answer, unfortunately, is somewhere between yes, no, and maybe. RBC Wealth Management says 42% probability of recession, right? That's using the recession scorecard. Goldman Sachs thinks there's a 35% probability of a recession using the three-year, 10-year yield curve inversion that we're experiencing right now, there's a 100% probability of a recession. If we look at the two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, we're not in a recession. But for bonus points, let's, let's look at the conference board leading index indicator, which is the final metric on the RBC scorecard. Again, that Con- that indicator is the composition of 10 other metrics. There's a link in the show notes if you want to see what it is. But it's predicting a recession in March 2023. So we have five different mechanisms to quantifying the likelihood of a recession. And it's literally yes, no, and maybe. Personally, I am preparing for wide-scale economic uncertainty. My point of view and recommendation to every listener is to have at least 12 months in cash or cash like assets in your reserve to offset the unexpected. This could mean like widespread layoffs. This could mean a downturn in the economy. If you're in sales, you might not lose your job, but you might be selling less, right? It goes on and on. Prepare for the worst. If we persist through 2023 and we don't see a recession by Q2 or by Q3, we might return to an expansionary period in 2024. But proceed with caution in the next 12 months. Ultimately, this entire analysis probably means very little to you. These esoteric assessments of the broader global economy using a composition of indicators from analysts and investment bankers probably has zero impact on your day-to-day life. When I spend time with friends and families who don't follow the markets, they truly could care less about the three-month, 10-year yield curve inverting, right? Recessions are a first-world problem reserved for the 1% with significant exposure to the capital markets. I remember growing up poor, living through recessions, My mom was a teacher when the economy tanked, my life was the same when the economy exploded. My life was the same, right? We had no substantial exposure to the capital markets. Our life remained unchanged. So keep that in mind. You see the talking heads explaining, denying, justifying. Are we in a recession? Are we not? Ask yourself, does it really matter? Is your life changing? Is your life going to change one way or the other? I live in San Francisco, and Porsche just announced they're opening a new dealership in March 2023. This is when RBC is predicting the recession to start. So if you ask Porsche, are we in a recession? Their answer is no. They're serving a segment of society that is immune to recessions, right? Moreover, I recently went on a family vacation to Universal Studios uh, in Orlando. I posted a picture of this on FrontmanCrypto.com for those who are interested, but it's a picture of the attendance at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter on a Tuesday. I mean, it was packed, like elbow-to-elbow packed. There's no room to walk on a Tuesday. So ask yourself, Are any of these people who are attending Universal Studios Orlando, Florida on a Tuesday, are they in a recession? Probably not. Now, they could be over-leveraged using credit cards to pay for a vacation they can't afford. That's another story. But from the consumer participating in vacations domestically and abroad, those numbers for sure don't indicate that we are in a recession To conclude, economists, investors truly might have the hardest job in the world trying to predict a recession. You can create a composition of metrics that answer the question based on whatever political ideology you want, right? I would not let it overwhelm your life. I mean, at least you weren't one of the suckers who bought Bitcoin at its all-time high because it's now the worst-performing asset of 2022. Just kidding. I also bought Bitcoin at its high in 2022, as well as 2021, 2020, 2019, and every year before then. Bitcoin is truly going to liberate the average American and citizen in the world from a government that no longer serves its people. We must look far beyond the immediate price of one Bitcoin and persist as it is truly generational wealth. But until next time, guys, I'm your host, John Cook. Thank you for listening. We are on a journey to front run the next generation of wealth creation that is decentralized finance and cryptocurrency. If you like what you heard, Hit the subscribe button, share with your friends, and subscribe to our newsletter at frontruncrypto.com. Until next time, thanks.